And with no further ado, please stand for the reading of God's word. Good morning, church. Today I'm going to be reading from Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to, the, to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you, will, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, family of God. So, Christians are people who believe in the triumph of God's grace, and for that reason, we are people who like to party. And traditionally, uh, Christians have created many parties that we celebrate throughout the year, but there are three high and holy days that Christians especially like to celebrate throughout the calendar year to remind us of the saving acts of God through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Now, The first of those we celebrated back on December 25th, Uh, you know about that, you remember that, that was Christmas. And on Christmas we were remembering the incarnation of the Son of God. Jesus, the Son of God, took on a human nature and came among us to save us from sin and to rescue us and give us hope. And then, several weeks back, we had Easter Sunday. And you'll remember, that was the moment when we remembered that Jesus, who died on the cross for our sins, then rose victoriously from the grave, defeating Satan, sin, and death so that we can be free and filled with hope. And those are exciting, but a lot of people in the body of Christ have forgotten about the neglected third holy day, and I'm on a mission to recover it, okay? And the neglected third high holy day party that Christians celebrate every year is Pentecost. Everybody say Pentecost. And Pentecost is the day that Christians traditionally remember the fact that the risen Lord Jesus, after he rose from the dead, ascended to the right hand of his Father and sat down on his throne as Lord of the universe, and then he poured out the Holy Spirit on the church. And we often call that the birthday of the church. What I want us to understand is that our salvation needs Pentecost just as much as it needs Christmas and Easter. We cannot be the people that God has called us to be apart from the gift of the Holy Spirit. But to say it positively, the good news of the gospel is not only that Jesus bore our sins on the cross and then defeated death, but it's that he poured out the Holy Spirit so that the living God can live inside of us right now. 
empowering us to begin enjoying the freedom and eternal life of God right now. Now, if you didn't know it, today was Pentecost Sunday. I'm not going to take a show of hands right now, but I bet that if you showed up on December 25th, you would know it's Christmas, but I also bet a lot of y'all came to church today without knowing it's Pentecost, right? So um, we've got we to recover this third holiday. And on Christmas, we told each other Merry Christmas. On Easter, we said Happy Easter. So right now, I need you to do something for me. Turn to your neighbor and say, Blessed Pentecost. Now, usually on Pentecost Sunday, we read the story from Acts chapter 2. That was the day of Pentecost when the disciples of Jesus were gathered as one. They'd been fasting. They'd been praying. And they heard a sound in the upper room like rushing wind. And something that looked like tongues of fire came and rested on their heads. They were receiving empowerment from the Holy Spirit. And they began to preach the gospel in languages they didn't know. And and people began hearing the gospel in their own heart languages. People from all over the world that had been gathered for Pentecost, which was a a harvest festival of the Jewish people that uh, comes 50 days after the Passover. And so Peter stood up. He preached the gospel powerfully. Lots of people believed. About 3,000 believed the gospel. Wouldn't that be fun if 3,000 people got saved at our church service? And they believed the gospel. They were baptized. They began to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The end of Acts chapter 2 says that this new body of believers, now trusting in Jesus Christ, filled with his Holy Spirit, were together in one accord, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching the breaking of bread, the fellowship, prayer. It says that they had all things in common, meaning there were some among them that were poor, but those who had wealth came and gave it to the apostles who shared it with the the body. They were living with radical generosity so that nobody had need, and it was just an awesome time at the beginning of the story of the church of Jesus Christ. That's what we usually read on Pentecost Sunday. That's what we read last time. We had a Pentecost Sunday sermon, but today we backed up into Acts chapter 1. And the reason we backed up into Acts chapter 1 is because Acts chapter 1 helps drive home to us the point that we desperately need the Holy Spirit. We are dependent on the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1 tells us why Acts chapter 2 wasn't an added bonus, but it was absolutely necessary for us to be the church. And I want us to think about the role of the Holy Spirit in our life as Christians today, and I want us to think about two words. I'll talk about what they mean as we go, but one of them is this word dependent. Everybody say dependent. And the other one is this word expectant. Everybody say expectant. As we go, we'll unpack what those words mean, but let's just start by tuning in our attention to what happened in those verses that Alexa read to us a moment ago. Acts chapter 1, 1 through 8, is telling us about what happened between the day that Jesus rose from the dead and the day, 40 days later, that Jesus ascended, he went up to heaven and sat down at the right hand of his Father. The book of Acts, if you don't know, is a sequel to the Gospel of Luke. So in the Gospel of Luke, Luke tells us the story about the birth of Jesus, his life, his teaching, his miracles, his death for our sins, his resurrection, and Now the book of Acts picks up where he left off, and most of it is going to tell us the story of what the Holy Spirit does through the apostles of Christ to spread the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the Gentiles and all the way to Rome, from which it could continue to spread throughout the world. 
But during these opening verses, Jesus is still on planet Earth. He hasn't ascended yet. The body of Christ is still physically present here. And it's talking to us about what he did. I want you to look with me for a second at verses 2 and 3 and notice three things it says Jesus was doing for the 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension. It says at the, in the second half of verse 2 that he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So Jesus has been teaching his apostles for three years. They've been with him. He's been teaching them about who God is and what God's ways are. But now he's continuing to teach them, and it's starting to make a little more sense because now they've seen him die and rise again. But notice it says he gave them commands through the Holy Spirit. I want you to circle those two words, Holy Spirit. Throughout this passage and throughout the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament, we see a clear witness that our God is Trinity. And the doctrine of the Trinity is a doctrine which can be difficult to wrap our minds around, but it's true. It's reality. If we want to know the reality of who our God really is and what he's like, we need to at least begin to think about this. And I'm not going to get into all the details right now, but I can say it to us like we begin to teach it to our children. Here's here's what we teach the kids. Everybody hold up one finger. Say, there's only one God. The whole Bible teaches that. But also, when you got baptized, if you're a follower of Jesus, you were baptized into the Threefold name, the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we teach our kids to hold up three fingers and then say, there's three persons in God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And God has eternally existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And all the things that God has done and does now and will do, he does as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so I just want you to notice it says Jesus is commanding and teaching his disciples through the Holy Spirit. I want you to notice, next time you read through one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, and John, that the Holy Spirit is always there, acting, present, with the Father and the Son. When Jesus came to earth, he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit. When Jesus is tempted in the well, first, when he's baptized, the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. When he's tempted in the wilderness, the text says, the Spirit led him out into the wilderness. Over and over when Jesus does miracles, we're told he does it because he has authority, but we're also told he does it through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself says, if I cast out demons, um, then the Spirit of God has come among you. So he teaches and he ministers through the Holy Spirit. He's explaining to them. And then verse 3 goes on to say two other things about what Jesus is doing. I like the first half of verse 3. He presented himself alive to them, that is to the apostles, after his suffering, by many proofs. Here's what I like about that. The apostles, the disciples of Jesus, as we discussed on Easter, were not expecting him to rise from the grave. They were not expecting that, even though he had told them at least three times it was going to happen. He said, I'm going to die and rise again. He tried to explain it to them from the scriptures. He had tried to tell them, as the Messiah of Israel, the Savior who has come from God to rescue the world, I must suffer like Isaiah wrote, but I also then am going to rise like Isaiah and the Psalms had declared. But they hadn't registered that. They still don't fully have the concept of a dying and rising Messiah. And even after he appears to them, the scripture tells us multiple times, they're filled with doubts. They're wondering, is he a ghost? They're trying to understand it. And so here it says, he presented to themselves not just once or twice, but many times over the course of 40 days by many proofs. Touch my hands, Thomas. 
Fill my side, Thomas. If you think I'm a ghost, I'm going to sit down and eat fish with you guys. I'm not a ghost. Jesus is showing them he has risen bodily from the grave. Okay? This is not just about the immortality of the soul. It's about the resurrection of the dead. And the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus means that God has moved human history into a new era. He is the first fruits, but now we all share in the power of his resurrection. And one day we will rise with him with cleansed and perfected souls and with glorified bodies, resurrected bodies to reign with him in the new creation. Doesn't that sound like fun? But then it goes on to say that during this time, he was speaking about the kingdom of God. You see that in verse 3? He presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them for 40 days, and speaking about the kingdom of God. Throughout his ministry, he had been teaching them about the fact that God is king. He'd been explaining the nature of God's kingdom. He'd been teaching that nobody can earn our way into God's kingdom by good behavior. Citizenship and the kingdom of God is something we receive by grace as a gift through faith in Jesus Christ. He'd been teaching them how do we live as citizens of God's kingdom, people of radical humility and truthfulness and grace and love and generosity and forgiveness. He's been explaining to them, but they've been slow to understand because their expectations were wrong. They, were, they had confused, misinterpreted readings of all the Old Testament promises about the kingdom of God. And it's clear that even after all this instruction, they don't fully get it because if you look at verse 6, they ask, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? I don't have time to break all that down, but everything in that question shows that they're still confused. They're still imagining that Jesus is about to, now that he's risen from the dead, he's going to go establish right now a political kingdom in Jerusalem, and they're going to reign with him in that new political kingdom, and then it's going to spread out throughout the rest of the world after he overthrows the Roman Empire. They're confused, and Jesus explains to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons, which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Um, and isn't, isn't that a word that we should hear? It is not for you to know. How many of you have, don't, um, don't raise your hand, but just in your own heart, ask yourself, how many of you, you have met experts on the times and seasons of the kingdom of God? When Jesus is going to come back, how it's about to unfold. But Jesus says, it's not for you to understand. But here's what I do want you to know. I want you to know two things, and these are the two really key verses that I want you to hear and lock into today. Let's back up to verse 4. It says, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. That's one thing I want you to know, disciples. Don't go yet. Don't leave yet. He's commissioning them, as we'll see in a minute, to be his witnesses among all nations. But he says, not yet. Wait for the promise of, our Father, of the Father. Then he goes on to um, explain what he means. John the Baptist, when he was baptizing people, said, I baptize you for repentance but not long from now is going to come one greater than me who's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And Jesus is saying that that promise of God through the scriptures and through John the Baptist and through Jesus' own teaching is about to be fulfilled. What Jesus is talking about is this. On Pentecost Day, they're going to receive a baptism which is not just water baptism. Okay, water baptism is important. We've had a couple of water baptisms in the last two months. 
baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And during those water baptisms, I think Brother Nate Estrada and Brother Chauncey Shiloh went in there with the baptismal candidates, and, and they took them down into the water, and they came up, and we all cheered and celebrated the new life in Christ. Remember that? Wasn't it awesome? Well, this is a different baptism. This time, the baptizer is Jesus, and what we're baptized into is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And Jesus is saying, not long from now, I'm about to pour out the Holy Spirit in a way that's going to fulfill the prophecies of Joel and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and various other Old Testament prophets that's going to usher in a new era for the people of God so that everybody who trusts in Jesus is going to be immersed in the power of God's Holy Spirit. And that that was a turning point in history so that now everybody who believes in Jesus is baptized by Jesus into the Holy Spirit. So that's verse 4, which says, wait for the promise of the Father. Wait. I want you to hear what he's saying. I have a mission for you, apostles, but you cannot do the mission in your own strength. And we could say to us, he has a mission for us, church, but we cannot do the mission in our own strength. He says, wait. Wait for the promise of the Father. Now, this idea of waiting runs through the whole scriptures. We see over and over that God says, wait for the Lord. Everybody say, wait for the Lord. But this is a distinct moment where he's saying, wait, because a few days from now, I'm about to do something that I've never done before, and it's going to change. This idea of wait, wait, apostles, don't go try to fulfill your mission until I pour out the Holy Spirit, is where I'm getting this word dependence. He wants the apostles to understand you're dependent on the Spirit. You cannot be my witnesses effectively without the Holy Spirit. You cannot be all that I've called you to be without a new work of the Holy Spirit. You cannot do what I've called you to do without a new work of the Holy Spirit. So that's this word dependence. It was true for the apostles and church is true for us. We're dependent on the Holy Spirit. We need the Spirit. This is about humility, humble dependence. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We recognize that we're spiritually bankrupt apart from the empowering grace of the Spirit. But then, verse 8, after he told them, I don't want you to know about times or seasons, that's not for you. But then he says this, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And that last part of that verse is kind of an outline of the book of Acts. And just a little while after this, after the Holy Spirit is poured out, thousands of believers from Jerusalem and Judea are going to begin believing in Jesus Christ. And then not long after that, the gospel is going to go to Samaria, which uh, was you know, a group that was connected historically to Jerusalem and Judea, but they had been split off. If you don't remember, it happened under the reign of Rehoboam. We don't have time to go into all that, but they, they have been intermarried now, and there's eth- ethnic and religious division. They kind of believe in the God of Israel, but they got all kinds of bad theology, but they're going to be brought back home, spiritually speaking. And then a little while after that, the gospel's going to get out to the Gentiles. The Holy Spirit's going to be poured out through the preaching of the gospel in Cornelius' house, and then Paul is going to be commissioned to go to the Gentiles, and the book of Acts ends 
with Paul in Rome, the political and cultural capital of the Gentile world from which it can spread out to the rest of the world. So this is kind of an outline of what God is going to do through the apostles in the book of Acts. But what I want you to notice right now is that whereas verse 4 is all about dependence, verse 8 is all about expectation. So when we think about Pentecost Sunday and what it means for us as Christians today, verse 4 is saying we need a sense of holy dependence. We cannot do what God has called us to do in our own strength. We cannot be what God has called us to be in our own strength. But verse 8 is talking to us about holy expectation, which means not only is it true that we cannot do this on our own, it's also true that we are not on our own. It's true that when we're surrendered to the will of God, God will move. So what does that mean when you put it together? It means when I stand up here right now to preach, I have a very clear sense that there's nothing about me or my study or my intelligence or my gifting or anything that can make a lick of difference in your life. I have a deep sense of dependence and need for God, but I also come up with expectation. As I come preaching the word, I know that the Holy Spirit is moving. I'm expecting there's people listening to me right now who have never trusted in Jesus that today you're going to trust in Jesus and your life is going to be changed. I'm expecting right now that there are Christians who came here discouraged and despondent who are going to leave here empowered and strengthened by grace and zealous for the kingdom of God. I'm expecting there's been Christians here, there are Christians here right now listening who have been living in hidden sin, but today is going to be a day of confession and repentance and freedom. I'm expecting that there are divisions in your families and in the church that I don't know about, but that God knows about, that he's going to break through by the power of the Holy Spirit to bring healing today, and it's going to start in your heart. Do you see what I'm saying there? Dependence and expectation. It works for you as hearers of the word, too. If you come here thinking that in our own strength, in your own strength, you can hear the Bible and then apply it to your life and everything's going to be fine, it won't work. You need the Holy Spirit. But on the other hand, if you come with a sense of expectation, God, I want you, I want you to change me, and I'm submitted to your will. Whatever you say, that's what I want, and I'm expecting you to change my life. He will do it. That's what Jesus meant when he talked about hearing the word with the measure you bring to him. That's the measure you'll go back with. I mean, really, we could go exegete those verses from the Gospels. And what he's saying is, if you come with a sense of humble expectation, you will, get what you, you will get from God what you're wanting, what you're expecting. It may not come in the way that you expect it. It usually doesn't. But you'll get the measure of your faith. Humble dependence, holy expectation. Humble dependence, holy expectation. What would it look like for us, church, to be a people that our whole life together as the body of Christ is characterized by a radical sense of our dependence on the Holy Spirit. There's a humility and a radical sense of expectation. We just think no matter what the challenges are that we're facing in the church or in the culture, God is God. And God is going to save lost people in our community. And God is going to heal and restore what is broken. He's still stronger than the devil in the world. Humble dependence, holy expectation. Now, I'm going to do something a little bit different for the rest of our time today. I, I want to take a minute to try as a, as a body to ask two questions and do a little survey of the scripture to try and answer these two questions about the Holy Spirit and the life of our church. So this is a little different. I'm going to go a little topical for a moment. 
I would encourage you to do two things. If you're a note taker, I'd encourage you to take out a pen and jot down some notes about what I'm about to share. I'm going to go a little bit fast. But I'm also going to ask you with humble dependence and with holy expectation to ask the Holy Spirit to help you to hone in on one of the things I'm about to say to speak to you. And this will be more clear in just a second. But um, here's the two questions I want us to ask as a church family today. First question, what does the Holy Spirit want to do in our lives, in our church, and in our world? Okay, I don't want to be vague about this. I don't want to just talk about the power of the Holy Spirit in some sort of nebulous way. The Holy Spirit has revealed to us in Scripture some very specific stuff that he wants to do. And he's working on it right now in this room. So I want us to be clear. What does the Holy Spirit want to do in our lives, in our church, and in our world? That's the first question. And I'm going to spend... Most of our time for the next few minutes laying out for you about six things the Bible says the Holy Spirit wants to do. So here's what I want you to do. Jot down some notes about this, but then ask Holy Spirit, what's one of these that you really want me to hear and focus on today? Okay, Because I think he's probably going to have a different one for different individuals in the room. Second question I'm going to ask is, how do we partner with the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, in our church, and in our world? How do we partner with the Holy Spirit? Because here's the thing. The Holy Spirit has already been poured out at Pentecost. That already happened. That wait for the promise of the Father thing that Jesus was talking about was something that was historically specific. Wait until Pentecost Sunday. The Pentecost, or Pentecost Day, but Pentecost happened already. So the power of the Holy Spirit is already available to us, and the promises of Scripture about how much God wants to pour out the Holy Spirit into his church are so clear that I think... The great missionary pioneer and theologian J. Oswald Sanders was right when he made this challenging statement. Every Christian is as full of the Holy Spirit as he or she really wants to be. Every Christian is as full of the Holy Spirit as he or she really wants to be. Are we going to block the work of the Spirit in our lives or are we going to swim with the current of what God's Spirit is doing? And if we swim with the current, then we will experience God doing awesome stuff. It doesn't mean we'll be wealthy and healthy and prosperous all the time. It often means he's going to call us into places of suffering and sacrifice and humility and weakness. But within that imitation of the cross, we'll experience the power of the resurrection in our hearts and our community. And and he will be at work. So those are the two questions. First, what does the Holy Spirit want to do in our lives, in our church, and in our world? Let me say a few things quickly. I'm going to mention six things. These are all things the Bible says that the Holy Spirit wants to do in our lives as believers. But before I do that, I should say, the first thing God wants to do in any of our lives is to lead us to a place of trusting in Jesus Christ. If, if you're a Christian, then you've already experienced the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit in your life. God sent somebody to preach the gospel to you in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then you never would have understood that gospel and believed it and repented and trust Jesus unless the Holy Spirit was enabling you to do all that. So aren't you thankful for God's Spirit in your life already? And if you're here today, you came here spiritually seeking and you're not tracking with everything that I'm saying, but God's awakening you in you a hunger. You want to know God. You want to experience his power in, in your life. Here's what I'm very confident the Holy Spirit is doing right now. He's saying to you, believe in Jesus. He's saying to you, Jesus is the Son of God. He's your only hope. He died on the cross for your sins. He rose again. He's going to come back one day to set everything right. Believe in Jesus. That's the first step. And today, if you'll believe in him, he will begin to change your life. And now I'm going to say, here's six things he wants to do in the lives of believers on an ongoing basis. Okay, number one, 
The Holy Spirit frees us from fear by reminding us who God is and who we are in Christ. That's the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a Christian. He frees us from fear by reminding us who God is and who we are in Christ. I'm just going to give you one text of scripture on this. Romans chapter 8, verse 15. The Apostle Paul writes this. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Mm. So many people living in slavery to fear. But it's saying there's a liberating work that God's Holy Spirit wants to do. A freedom work. No longer slaves to fear of anything. And how does that work? The Holy Spirit, Paul says, um, I lost my place. Here's where he says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But he says, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And what he's saying right there is the Holy Spirit is saying, we don't have to be slaves to fear because we know who God is and we know who we are. That cry, Abba, Father, I love it, I love it. It's saying the Holy God inside of us, the Spirit, is teaching us to pray in a way where when we talk to God, we're calling him and thinking about him as Abba, Father. And this term, Abba, it's an affectionate term, okay? It's not like casual in a disrespectful way. It's a respectful way, but it's an affectionate, intimate term. I remember one time this came alive to me. This was years ago. I was camping. I don't even remember who I was with, but I was on a camping trip, and uh, I had walked over into the kind of bathhouse area, and there was a little boy with his dad um, from another part of the world that, that were uh, walking to the same thing, and he had his towel, and he's getting ready for his, his shower. And, but he was running up to his dad, asking for help, and the little boy was running up, and what he was saying what would have been in English, Daddy, Daddy, but he was running up to him saying, Abba, Abba, with his hands out like this, and there was just so much affection and trust, and it was like, that's what it means. That's what it means. Saying, the, the Holy Spirit in you sets you free from fear by saying to you, God is not an angry taskmaster. God is a loving father, and your daddy is bigger than anybody else's daddy on the block. He's stronger than the devil, and he loves you. He's omnipotent. He has all the power. He's omnipresent. He goes everywhere. He's in charge, and he has deep affection for you, and you, your identity is not your sins. Your identity is not the sum of all your failures. Your identity is not how much progress you've made in spiritual maturity this week. Your identity is by grace, you're an adopted child of God. You're not a slave anymore. So get the voice of Pharaoh out of your head saying, more bricks, you're not trying hard enough, you're not working hard enough, work, 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 maybe I'll give you, I probably won't ever give you a day off. Your your father is Yahweh, the God of Israel. And he says, you're mine and I love you and you're free. That's the work the Holy Spirit wants to do in our lives. Here's the second thing the Holy Spirit wants to do in our lives. The Holy Spirit helps us to interpret the scriptures rightly and apply biblical wisdom to our daily lives as followers of Jesus. The Bible is a living book, but sometimes we come to it with hearts that are half dead. And if you want to experience the Bible as a living book, you need the living Holy Spirit inside of you, and you need a heart that's open to him with humble dependence and holy expectation. The, the scriptures talk about this a lot. Let me just mention one text from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 
Um, the, the whole context is Paul talking about the new covenant and how the Holy Spirit has revealed the truth of Jesus and helps us to understand it. But I'm just going to read you one verse. 1 Corinthians 2.12 says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. If you want to understand the truth about Christ, you need the Holy Spirit. And several weeks ago, we talked about, as a church, one of our core values that's going to define our culture is we're going to be people of the book. You remember this? Open up the book and let the word do its work. We talked about that a lot. Well, word and spirit go together here, which means we open up the book and let the word do its work, and we do it prayerfully with a a deep sense of humble dependence and holy expectation. So first, the Holy Spirit frees us from fear by reminding us of who God is and who we are. Second, the Holy Spirit helps us to interpret the scriptures rightly and apply biblical wisdom to our daily lives as followers of Jesus. Third, the Holy Spirit empowers us to form beautiful habits of Christ-like character. I want you to think for a second about somebody that you've known who is a mature Christian, like a seasoned saint. They've been walking with God for a while, for years and decades, so that every time you got around them, they just exuded love and grace, and wisdom, and it felt like no matter what craziness was going on in life, they just couldn't be shook. There was a steadfastness of peace and joy in their life. Can you think of somebody like that? Here's what happened. That person spent a lifetime practicing obedience to Jesus, and the Holy Spirit changed their character, okay, so that they started looking like Jesus. There's many passages of Scripture about this. 2 Corinthians 3, 17 through 18 is a great place to go, but let me just read you the classic Galatians 5, 22 through 23, I think the Gospel Project team has learned a song this week. Is the fruit of the Spirit a banana? The fruit of the Spirit is not a banana. Instead, the text says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That is a list of what Jesus is like, right? Those are the character qualities of Jesus. He just overflows love. When when your character becomes like Christ, there's an abiding joy and peace, which doesn't mean we're not grieved. It doesn't mean we're insensitive to bad things in life. It doesn't mean that we're never sad. But it means that even in the midst of chaos and deep grief, there's an even deeper sense of joy because we know God is still God. And our suffering is temporary, and the purposes of Jesus will prevail. And these character qualities, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, these are things that are obtained over the course of a lifetime of faithful obedience with the empowering grace of the Holy Spirit. So he wants to work in our character. A fourth thing the Holy Spirit wants to do is this. Number three was the Holy Spirit empowers us to form beautiful habits of Christ-like character. But number four is the Holy Spirit empowers us to kill ugly, destructive habits of sin. Those go together. Here's a text, Romans 8, 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, talking about the Holy Spirit, you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. When Paul talks about the misdeeds of the body, he just means our sinful impulses, our bad attitudes, our grumbling, our anger, our wrath, our lust, our, you know, all that stuff. Those ugly patterns of sin. And John Owen, 
I think, rightly summarized the import of this verse when he said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Now, as Christians, aren't you glad to be accepted and saved by grace even if you sin this week? Can we testify? Anybody happy about that? Okay, have you also noticed that as Christians, sin still messes everything up? It messes up our life. It messes up our relationship. It hinders us from experiencing the joy and the fullness that God wants to give to us. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Now, the key insight of Romans 8, 13 is you can do it not because you are strong, but because the Spirit is your partner in this work. The Spirit of the living God, which means there's, there's a way that this is a hard truth. That we can experience this as rebuke, but I find it incredibly comforting. Here's the hard truth. If you have debilitating, ugly habits of sin in your life, okay? I'm not talking about a mental health struggle or a trauma or something like that. I'm talking about sin. If you have debilitating patterns of sin in your life and you have trusted in Jesus, the reason that that sin continues to be such a dominating force is because you don't maybe want the power of the Holy Spirit in your life as much as you say you do. The reason is not that there's a deficiency of power. The reason is that there's a deficiency of willingness on our part. Okay? Now that's the hard part, but here's the comforting part. If you feel totally stuck and there's this sin that has been dominant in your life for a long time, and you've trusted in Jesus, you're a believer, and you, can't, you, feel, you just feel stuck. I'll never get rid of this. I'm just going to keep acting this way my whole life. The good news of the gospel is that's a lie from the devil. And that if you'll just get after it, I mean, you've got to do the work. Paul says, let's read it. This is in John Mark's word. This is God's word through Paul the apostle. He says, if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body. So you've got to do the work. You, you say, I've tried, I've tried, I've done everything. Have you really done everything? How many people have you confessed it to openly? How many pastors have you been vulnerable with about it? How much accountability have you invited into your life? How many points of temptation have you cut, out, cut off? How much time have you spent fasting and praying? Have you really done everything? There's a lot of us that spend a lot of time grieving about our sins instead of killing our sins. But the encouragement here is, if you will go fight against your sin, the Holy Spirit will give you victory. Now, I'm not saying it's going to be easy and quick. I've got some I've been trying to kill for a minute. But what I'm saying to myself is the problem is not the Holy Spirit's unwillingness or lack of resources. The problem is I've got more work to do, right? So I don't want anybody to feel guilt or shame. There's no sh- Everybody turn to your neighbor and say, there's no shame here. But, but what we are saying, Jesus already loves you where you are, but you don't have to stay there. The Spirit's work in your life is saying, God loves you. He's your Abba Father. You're his beloved child right now. And he wants to make you more beautiful and less ugly than you are right now by his grace, okay? So, number five. The Holy Spirit empowers us to love and serve one another in supernatural ways. You remember last week when Chauncey preached and it was great because, you know, the Bible's good and Chauncey's awesome? Remember that? And He was talking about our life together. We live as the family of God and the radical ways that we love one another. What I'm just adding to this right now is we can't do it apart from the Holy Spirit, but with the Holy Spirit, we can do it in supernatural ways, okay? A text you can look at, go deep into this, would be 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14. Just read those three chapters on repeat. There's a few confusing verses in there. You can come talk to me about it. But there's a lot of really good stuff in there. And it's saying this, the Holy Spirit in you supernaturally empowers you to pursue the good of every other Christian, including everybody in this room. I want you to look around at the room for a second. Everybody say, we are family. 
You may not feel like it, but it's true in Christ. And we may, we may be good siblings or we may be bad siblings, but we're siblings because Jesus has made us family now if we trusted in Christ. And what it's saying is if you will yield to the Spirit and swim with the flow of God's Spirit in your life, then he's going to give you a supernatural desire to see everybody else in this room reaching their full God-given potential. But he's not only going to give you that desire, he's going to empower you for it. He's going to give you gifts. I don't have time to break it all down, but in that text it talks about gifts of of healing and gifts of service and gifts of giving and gifts of hospitality and words of wisdom, all these different supernatural abilities. But the main point is that it's, it's for the purpose of building each other up. So here's one verse, 1 Corinthians 12, 7. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. What does that mean? It means part of what Pentecost is, is the personal presence of God coming among us to build a community. To build a community where we practice in visible, tangible ways a supernatural form of family life in Christ that is healing and powerful for us, and it's a powerful witness to the world. Last one here. The Holy Spirit empowers us to be wise and courageous witnesses to the reality of Jesus and his kingdom. We're bearing witness to Christ and his kingdom through our words as we preach the gospel and through uh, our works as we do works of love and mercy and justice and compassion in our community. We need word and deed together. But what we're saying is, whether it's the gospel project team going out uh, into the community all summer or whether it's the team we just commissioned to go to North Africa or whether it's any of us in our daily work, in our daily ministries, as we're relating to neighbors, Many of you are part of outreach teams for our church. In whatever we're doing, we are totally dependent upon the power of the Holy Spirit, but we should also have a sense of expectation. God cares about people more than we do, and he has infinitely more resources than we do to change somebody's life. And there's been so many times where I was trying to love somebody or share with somebody, it just seemed impossible to me, and then the Spirit began to give me faith, and I began to pray, and they got saved. And their life began to, got, uh, to be changed. Now, you've already seen this in Acts 1.8. He says to the apostles, and derivatively to us, he's, you're going to receive power from the Holy Spirit to be his witnesses. Okay? What does that mean? I, I think it means a lot of things, but here's at least two. It means he's going to give you courage to practice love and truth, even if it feels scary. And he's going to give you wisdom to help you bear witness to Christ and win some ways. That's at least two things. But I want to add one more text to that. This is John 16, 8, when Jesus was talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit. It says, And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, when John says the world, he means unbelievers. And this verse is saying, part of the coming of the Holy Spirit means God is going to supernaturally do the, a work in the hearts of unbelievers to help us see our sin, our rebellion, and his holiness and his grace so that we can repent and believe in Jesus. If you're a Christian, it's because God the Spirit did that work in you. But now, here's what I want to say. When you go out to bear witness to Christ, to be salt and light in whatever place God has placed you, not only is he empowering you for the witness, but he's working in the other person's life. Isn't that amazing? He is supernaturally calling them to himself. So I just gave you six things the Holy Spirit wants to do. Let me read them to you one more time. Ask the Spirit right now 
to show you if there's one of these, he really wants to do a work in your heart today. The Holy Spirit frees us from fear by reminding us who God is and who we are in Christ. The Holy Spirit helps us to interpret the scriptures rightly and apply biblical wisdom to our daily lives as followers of Jesus. The Holy Spirit empowers us to form beautiful habits of Christ-like character. The Holy Spirit empowers us to kill ugly, destructive habits of sins. The Holy Spirit empowers us to love and serve one another in supernatural ways. And the Holy Spirit empowers us to be wise and courageous witnesses to the reality of Jesus and his kingdom. Now, I'm almost done. I'm going to skip most of the rest of my notes because I went long on that section. I think the Holy Spirit wanted us to talk about his work today more than our response. But, but before we finish, let me just briefly say this. For, actually, first, let me ask you a question. Would you like to experience more of the power of, of the Holy Spirit in your life? Me too. Here's some good news. The Holy Spirit wants it more than you do. This is what Jesus said in Luke eleven thirteen. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? More than you desire the good of your kids, God desires to fill you with the Holy Spirit. So how do you receive? I've got a lot of notes. If you want to come get the rest of the notes, I'll give you all the scriptures. But I'm just going to say this real fast right now without giving you all the references. Step one is to trust in Jesus. If you're here within the sound of my voice right now, I I want you to hear this. Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Savior of the world. He loves you. He died on the cross for your sins and rose again so you can be saved. And you receive that gift of salvation by trusting in Jesus. That means not only that your sins are forgiven, but now the Spirit of God is at work in your life in, in a new way. Right now, I plead with you, trust in Jesus. And before you leave, come talk to somebody about it who can help you grow in your relationship with Christ. But for the Christians here, I want to say, if you want to open yourself up to deeper experience of the power of the Holy Spirit, here's a few things couple simple practical thoughts as you leave here today. Spirit-filled lives are Jesus-focused lives. So just ask yourself the question, what are areas of my life where I'm focused on something other than Jesus? And then focus on Jesus, and you will find that the pipes are cleared up for the Holy Spirit in your life in a new way. Here's a second key idea. Tune into the words that the Spirit has inspired in the Scriptures with a renewed sense of expectation. It's time for us to open up the Bible, not just on Sundays, but in our homes and all the time, expecting a miracle every time. Learn to read the Bible as a supernatural book, expecting that the Spirit who inspired it is now going to illuminate it for you in a fresh way. Here's a third thing. Pray constantly for the help of the Holy Spirit. Every time we have a meeting as a church, a staff meeting, a planning meeting, whatever, we try to always pray at the beginning, pray at the end, spend most of the time praying. If we've got to neglect some logistics so that we don't neglect prayer, that's okay. Because much more important than us being awesome at logistics or our planning or whatever is that we are tuned into the Spirit of God. And here's the thing. God in his sovereign wisdom orchestrated the, the, the nature of his kingdom such that there's things he wants to do and he's waiting to do it for us to ask him so that we will see it as his answer to our prayer and give him glory for it, okay? So we want to be people who are praying constantly for the help of the Holy Spirit. Here's another thing. If you want to open yourself, I just want to encourage you with this word surrender. Everybody say surrender. Surrender to God's will. 
Listen, we cannot expect God's blessing and empowerment in one area empowerment in one area of our lives if we are rebelling against God in another area of our lives. We cannot use or exploit the Holy Spirit. He's the master in this relationship. So if we try to exploit him by saying, God, help me in this area, but I'm going to rebel over in this other area, it won't work. He loves us too much for that. He doesn't want to give us a little taste of him. He wants to give us all of him. So he's going to keep pursuing us until we're surrendered, opening ourselves up to his lordship in every area of our lives. Part of what that means for some of you today is that you're a Christian, you've been growing a little bit in your faith, but God wants to open you up to new areas of growth, and that's going to require you to confess to God and to some brothers and sisters some sin you've been hiding. And this is a place of grace that if you just do that today, say, hey, there's this thing, um, this dishonesty or this anger or this lust habit or this immorality, whatever it is, I just need to confess my sin to somebody and, and ask for prayer. God will start to open up new power for you. Last thing before we end is practice love. Great way to quench the Spirit is through bitterness and unforgiveness. A great way to open ourselves to the power of the Holy Spirit is through uh, saying, you know what, no matter what has happened in my past, no matter what's going to happen in the future, I'm just going to choose to value and treasure everybody like God does. I'm going to choose to love people. When we do that, we're swimming with the flow of the Spirit. Now, I was just going to pray for you, but actually I'm going to do a thing that wasn't planned. Alec, would you be willing to come strum behind me? You could say no, but everyone would know because I'm just asking you in front of all of them. Thanks, Alec. Um, I just feel like we need to corporately have a moment to respond today. I feel like the Holy Spirit's trying to do something. So here's what we're going to do. This wasn't part of the plan, but... I'm going to come, up, come back up here and say a closing prayer for us in a second, but I just want to take a few minutes for us to pray as a congregation. I'd encourage you, you could pray with somebody. You could bow your head. You might want to turn around and get on your knees where you are, but I'm going to come pray right here. I'm going to get on my knees because I just want to physically embody as one of the shepherds of this church. As a congregation, I feel that we need to have a deeper sense of humble dependence and of holy expectation. So I just want to be on my knees at this altar asking for God's help. I'm going to invite a couple other pastors and ministry leaders to come up. You can come pray, kneel at the altar if you need to confess any sins or if you need uh, to just ask for God's blessing or grace in some area of your life. Also, if you want to ask somebody to come pray for you, um, you can get one of the other pastors to pray for you. You can ask a friend to pray for you. You can tap me on the shoulder and I'll get up and pray for you. So I, I just feel like this is a moment instead of rushing that we want to wait for the Lord and respond to him in prayer. So you do that with me now.
God, we praise you. We thank you that you're with us now, that you've always loved us, that you always will love us. Lord, I ask even now, I don't know the burden on every person's heart or the needs that everybody has, but you do. And I ask that this would be a moment of freedom, that you would show us the reality of our Lord Jesus, that you would show us who you are as a loving Father, that you would show us who we are in Christ. And anyone who doesn't know you, this would be the moment of Version, the moment of salvation. Lord, I pray this would be a time of healing of hearts, of healing of relationships. I pray it would be a time of freedom, of confessing of sin, and of experiencing the fullness of your grace. Lord, as we sing another song, and then we've got a lot of stuff going on today as we have first Sunday lunch in a little bit, as many of us go out to the Peace Walk today, and as throughout the next week we're sharing the gospel and ministering in many ways in our community. Lord, we just want to say we need you. We can't do anything good in our own strength. We confess it freely. And our, our hearts cry, Lord, is we don't want glory. I pray that we would neither desire nor receive glory, but I pray that you would work through us in surprisingly powerful ways to do great things for your glory, for the salvation of souls, for the healing of hearts, for the restoration of families, Lord, for the healing of the breach, even as, as today many of us are going out to the East Side Peace Walk, Lord. I know there's been deep wedges of division in the body of Christ in our city, and I pray that those would be broken down today by your spirit. Lord, I pray um, where there's complacency in our church or in our city that the power of your Holy Spirit would give a new sense of urgency to us. She would help us to be Christ-focused, Christ-centered people. We just say, have your way, have your way, Jesus' name.